Welcome to the Troutwood Speaker Series. I'm Gene Natali. The topic of our conversation today is the ABCs of investment consultant. Our guest, Kwaku Obed, is from Chicago, where he's a managing director at Marquette Associates. Marquette Associates consults on $252 billion. And yes, you heard that correctly, billion. Kwaku's client base personally is in the billions of dollars. He's written a book titled Talking About the ABCs of Financial Literacy and understands the importance of this bridge. Kwaku is a graduate of the University of London, where he majored in economics and also has a master's degree in economics from the University of London. He's a recipient of the Bernard Corey Prize in Economics, and it is truly an honor to have Kwaku joining us today. Kwaku, welcome to the Troutwood Speaker Series. Great. Thanks for having me, Gene. Uh, and Kwaku, I'm just going to in terms of giving a background, I have heard your name for probably going back on at least 10 years in the wild world of networking. This is the first time we've actually met at the frame it. And I'm, I'm, I was, I woke up excited. I'm excited to talk and learn from you today. Same on this end. Looking forward to this. Let's dive in. T tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, the non-finance uh, background. We're going to be talking about finance most of our conversation. Sure. So I will give you the Cliff Notes version. And with the Cliff Notes version, I was born in New York at the age of three. My parents moved us uh, to the UK. Uh, in the UK, I was raised and educated there throughout high school, college, university, and the earlier years of my working life. Uh, I actually worked as a junior economist uh, during the first iteration of my career. And then I moved uh, to the U.S. 21 years ago and moved to the New Jersey area. Uh, why New Jersey? Uh, you know, quick summary there. My oldest sister lived in New Jersey, so I had a family member. Uh, I could crash on that couch, basically, and kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, this was in the days of Monster.com. So going back, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have no idea what monster.com is, but this was a job board where you put your resume up. I ended up applying for work and got a job in asset management, really just worked my way through the bottom. And as time went on and I was figuring out career choices, career paths, and so on, it did lead me to the investment consulting route, which I'm sure we'll touch upon uh, momentarily. And I'll brag about Marquette Associates for you. Great firm. I know many of your colleagues, just uh, high caliber by every single definition of the word. We appreciate that. Quaker, you left out an important part in your Cliff Notes summary because as we were talking just prior uh, to going <laughs> live here, I learned what your 400 meter time was. And I'm yes. going to ask you to share. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I swear it was 51 seconds. It was... Um... Yeah, I, 51 was my personal best, which was, um, yeah, something I'm pretty proud of. Something I wish I could still do today, but uh, no longer 18 years old. Well, and that, that is not a slow, a slow time. I, <laughs> I didn't ask you, <laughs> what is your mile time? That, I'm, I was not a runner, but a mile I can translate. Did you run a mile or are those not correlated where if you're a good 400 runner is not a miler? No, so we would do... Um, so the 1500 is just shy of the mile, right? It's 16 something meters for a mile, but we would do 1500s on track and we'd also run cross, cross country, but 
Goodness, I, I can't I can't remember. I swear for the 1500s, we were pulling in like five minutes for the 1500s. So you add on another 100 meters, that gets you the mile. 100, another 160 meters. So we, I played rugby uh, in school and you had to be at a decent level of fitness, which mm. I'm no longer at anymore. But we, we were pretty good. We were pretty good at track. We were pretty good at uh, short distance as well as long distance. So pretty proud of the times I could pull off back then. So fun. What is, so what are some non-finance hobbies that you do today? Ah, that's a great question. So uh, writing has been a pretty nice, fun hobby for me. Uh, you know, I would say exercising and working out, but my wife always reminds me that that's not a hobby. That's not, <laughs> that's not relaxing. That's not fun. Uh, so I'd say, you know, being a father um, is obviously key. Spending time with the kids, uh, you know, that's been really, really fun. I think this COVID environment has really changed up uh, the notion of what a hobby is versus work. Um, you know, I've, I've taken into building arcades in my spare time, uh, like retro arcades. That's just something that has been fun during the winter months where it's been cold and dark and getting snowed in. So I've picked up some new hobbies over COVID. We're going to talk later in this conversation about your book, The ABCs of Financial Literacy. One curiosity question I have, and maybe a, a bridge, was your work at Marquette the inspiration for that book, or were you inspired maybe outside of the office? So that was actually um, inspiration outside of the office. That was from working from home. So I have three children. Uh, I am working from home. They're studying from home, and uh, our house isn't soundproofed for everyone to be working and interacting. So literally months in, uh, you know, my, my kids get to hear about what I'm doing with clients, right? They hear one side of the conversation. I'm talking a lot. I'm talking about the markets. Uh, I'm talking about the election, uh, all just very, very pertinent things. And we ended up just having more and more discussions around what I do for a living. Um, and I think the genesis of that was, uh, you know, that led to this book being written, uh, being able to talk about financial concepts in a very uh, high level setting, but do it for a child to hear and understand and comprehend. Uh, that was really the basis of uh, writing the book. I ended up thinking, wow, this would be something neat just to kind of put out there. So, uh, you know, my kids seem to enjoy this if I explain it a certain way, and maybe other kids can get to enjoy this. And it was just a nice also, you know, it was a nice way just to kind of um, escape for a little, right? Just uh, put some words down on paper, work with a graphic designer, and ultimately put something positive out there. Uh, I love that background. We are going to circle back uh, to that book and to the financial education, the bridge part of the conversation. Let's let's dive into your, your role at Marquette, though, and helping individuals, educators, students, parents understand what is an investment consultant. Absolutely. And in fact, for this portion of the discussion, I do have some slides. I'm hoping that my tech savvy won't get the better of me. So let's see if I can get these up. 
Quaker, as you're bringing up the slide, you had given the, the monster.com analogy in your introduction. Absolutely, I remember monster.com. Yes. That, was that, how long after that journey did you join Marquette? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I joined, I would say Marquette was much, much later on in the journey. So the moving to New Jersey portion of things, uh, I spent seven years on the East Coast. Uh, I met my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, in the East Coast. Uh, she's from Indiana, and uh, Indiana is not too far from Chicago, so that's one reason why we ended up relocating uh, to Chicago after we got married and we were looking to start a family. Uh, following uh, my stint in asset management, I worked for another investment consulting firm uh, for seven years. And I, I don't know why it's seven years at each point, but uh, I've been at Marquette just over seven years now. So Marquette is definitely the latter part of everything, but um, it was a very deliberate decision on my part and Marquette's part uh, for me to come on board. Uh, I think we'll talk about Marquette momentarily. And there's just um, there's a passion, there's a deliberateness in terms of what we do, how we interact with clients how we position ourselves in the marketplace. And um, you know, me coming on board was just uh, an exciting way to join a firm that was really you know, positioned to do great things. And then ultimately, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have some folks that saw uh, the benefits of having me on board and perhaps what I could bring to the table. So uh, Marquette's been seven years, but um, you know, I spent some time at other institutions prior to joining Marquette. Well, tell, tell us about Marquette and tell us for anyone who, and I, I want to make sure that, that you and I having been in the, you being industry, me having been in the industry, we, we don't lose sight that this may be the first time many people are hearing the term investment consultant. What does that Absolutely. Mean? Absolutely. And uh, just to be sure, can you guys see the slide that's up? Absolutely. Yeah. We saw them when you, when you brought them up. Okay, great. So uh, yeah, the term investment consulting, it's one of those interesting terms, right? When you ask a kid what they want to be in school, uh, two things are never going to come up, right? Otherwise, that, that kid, I think, probably needs help. But it's an uh, actuary. You never hear a kid say, I want to be an actuary. And you never hear a kid say, I want to be an investment consulting uh, consultant or join an investment consulting firm. So I would say that our industry is perhaps one that exists um, um, behind the scenes a little bit more. I think the investment bankers, the brokers, uh, the policy makers, uh, you know, those career routes are known a lot more, but an investment consultant is really a trusted advisor to an institution. And the goal of the trusted advisor is to help set asset allocation, find the right investments, and then monitor and ascertain how those investments are doing. Uh, the term asset allocation points to a long-term perspective. So our goal is not to jump in and out of the market and make the next hot bet something we benefit from. Uh, we typically look at our investments over a, a market cycle. Uh, a market cycle is, you know, can be, depending on the asset class, anything from five years to 10 years, depending on the asset class. So again, it's a very uh, thoughtful, long-term approach we have uh, to working with clients. And with respect to clients, I guess we'll jump into it momentarily on the client base, but we can think about pension plans, we can think about not-for-profits, uh, and then the types of institutions can range from public entities uh, to corporations, 
uh, again, not-for-profits. And then we have some colleagues that do uh, work with high net worth individuals. So a pretty diverse array of clients that we work with. Quaker, just to share a little, share, put some context around that. When you say a pension fund, if I'm in a classroom listening to this conversation, educators tend to participate in pension funds. That's Correct. Directly relate to. Correct. So teachers, for example, represent um, a big portion of the pension fund market. So the work we do uh, is to make sure that those teachers, after a life of uh, you know, teaching, uh, which we all know comes with challenges. So God bless the teachers. Uh, you know, as a as a parent that's um, got kids uh, studying at home, I, I appreciate and love my teachers. So uh, the goal here is to make sure that the teachers, the uh, individuals that are paying into a pension fund after a full career, are able to draw on that money. So our job is to make sure that those monies are invested appropriately. Those monies hit a set target rate of return and. Uh, again, uh, I view our job as vocational. It's very important. It's it's making sure that the money is there after a lifetime of work for people. It's mm, a powerful comment. And with respect to Marquette, really just, um, yeah, we're an investment consultant. Uh, this is uh, a slide that we put out there to the marketplace. I really focus on, well, I'll focus on all four really. So here we talk about our people and I made a comment earlier about joining Marquette and the fact that, you know, as a firm, there's just a very deliberate approach we have with respect to working with clients and consulting. So the people that I work with, my colleagues, uh, I think, again, we just have so many unique individuals. Every firm says that, but I, I can't stress enough. We have a lot of unique individuals that bring something special uh, to the table. Uh, independent expertise. So I think this is also a really important point to raise. We just focus on investment consulting. So we're not looking to upsell. We're not looking to uh, you know, sell other products to our clients. All we're looking to do is advise them on the right thing to do. And that advice is really what leads to our business growing. If that advice is good, uh, you know, our reputation is further enhanced and our reputation being further enhanced is ultimately uh, what's essential to us growing and expanding. Uh, focus service, I think this is another great thing. We get hired by our clients, but we end up becoming really an extension of the client's team. We end up becoming perhaps friends with the clients in the sense of, uh, you know, on any given day, doesn't matter what time is, you're on the phone with a client and it's a very uh, genuine, uh, very collegial, very you know fun discussion that you have. I think one of the things I'm very blessed uh, to have is a client base that I, I have clients that I consider to be my friends uh, and we just can have long conversations about things. So it, it doesn't feel like work, right? The, the servicing of a client uh, just feels some, like something very natural. And you can spend hours uh, just conversing around the portfolio, things to do in the portfolio with clients. And that takes us to a really important point, careful research. So any idea that makes it into a client portfolio is thoroughly vetted, uh, thoroughly discussed and reviewed, not only by myself, but my colleagues in research. So uh, what are the takeaways from all these points on this page? 
uh, we're long-term in terms of our approach. We're independent. We are there to help institutions with their investment decisions. And part of that help is from providing uh, significant amounts of research and uh, talking points around that research. Now, the next slide uh, takes us to uh, Marquette with respect to uh, assets under advisement, the number of clients we have, uh, the client retention rate. Uh, this is kind of neat here as well. The quality leader award, which goes back to a comment I made earlier around working with clients, partnering with clients and making sure that the information we give to them is thoroughly vetted, well thought out. Uh, and we're working as uh, you know true partners. Uh, this is a nice stamp of approval from the industry where it points to our services and the advice that we give uh, being considered of the highest caliber, of high caliber. So uh, we see here a number of really, really good and compelling points. Uh, there's a 99% client retention ratio. So that also means that when we work with our clients, these are long-term relationships. We don't lose the clients. We're not turning over clients. We're not chasing these clients. Uh, over years, decades in some cases, uh, we're building strong relationships with these clients. Uh, we've been in the business for 35 years, so this is something that's uh, uh, you know, a core competency of ours. Uh, $252 billion under advisement, over 400 clients, and we're the 21st largest investment consultant. So this is a pretty powerful number. Uh, the, you know, the top investment consulting firms they are in the trillions, uh, we're in the billions. So it gives you a sense of just how large this industry is and how large this industry can be for us to be considered 21st. Uh, we're still you know, very large. Uh, I have large clients and for every dollar that they have, that's a dollar of retirement money uh, that someone will be expecting to draw upon. So uh, I try not to get caught up on the size discussions in our industry and I just focus on what the client's looking for us to do. Kwaku, let's unpack that because I, I don't want any student to be turned off by the T word trillions. Okay, that, sure. That money, who, who is that for? Who is actually the beneficiaries of that, the billions or the trillions? Yeah, ab absolutely. And that, that, that's a rule that I, I always have. Uh, I am a trusted advisor, but it's not my money at the end of the day. The money is the clients. It's the institutions it's the cities, it's the uh, municipalities, it's the endowments, it's the foundation. So ultimately, uh, the money belongs to another entity. And again, uh, it could be the city. Well, you know, let me go one step further, even more granular. It's, it's the teacher's money, it's the firefighter's money, uh, it's the police officer's money, it's the, uh, the laborer's money. So it's the money for the people, and our job is to be a steward and a fiduciary and advise over that. So I think that's a really, really great point. And sometimes in our industry, I think folks can get caught up on those numbers and forget who owns those numbers. We, we don't own that. We advise. Those are assets under advisement, meaning that someone else owns those assets. Thank you. Very well said. And then this slide here just points to us being an independent investment consultant. Uh, this is, again, a nice proof statement for us, uh, particularly uh, for our clients. And it gives our clients comfort that when we talk to them and we're in the room with them, 
our objective is just to give them the advice that benefits them. So there's a lot of no's on this page. Uh, that's you know a joke we have internally. Uh, a lot of no's, but the the no's here point to the fact that all we're focused on is the best advice for the clients, and we're not looking to sell other products. We're not looking to add uh, you know other revenue streams that may conflict the integrity of our advice to our clients. So that truly is uh, something we stand behind. The the independence that we have at Marquette. Uh, something that we're very proud of. So we have the latest count, 23 partners at the firm. Uh, I, I'm one of the partners, one of the owners of the firm as well. And uh, there's 23 of us. And again, being independent, uh, there's something very beautiful about that. Uh, it also just gives you that extra level of buy-in with respect to what you're doing, the advice you're giving your clients. And ultimately, it's you know something that I'm also invested in, uh, literally. Quake, I, I, as you were talking, I was drafting kind of a classroom assignment. If I was a high school educator, maybe teaching personal finance, I wrote down words. If I was teaching about what my students should look for one day as they begin to invest or learn how, long-term relationship, you had mentioned. Independent yes. was a word you've said a lot. There to help. Research matters. And then that strong client retention. A teacher could build a really good classroom assignment off of the principles that you just outlined to help individuals look for those same things as they age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Quaker, I don't want to interrupt the presentation. I'm bad. I say, yeah, I say that often, but I think, yeah. Did you have a couple more slides? No, that's it. We're, we're good on the slides. Excellent. Um, so, what, so what was... What does a day look like? And you had started by saying two careers, actuary and investment consultant aren't um, careers that students, let's change that. Let's make investment consultant. I, I want to hear one of my students at the University of Pittsburgh come to me and say, Gene, I want to be an investment consultant. I don't say, sure, let me introduce you to Quaku. Um, sure, what does a day look like? What does a week look like? Absolutely. absolutely. And you know what? That's, that's an excellent point. Let's change the narrative to be... Uh, a career, a target that someone can aspire to uh, doing, even from a, a super young age. So a, a day, I would say the days are really involved with conversing with clients, researching what's happening, whether it's respect to with respect to a client portfolio or a policy that's taking place, and then how certain segments of the market are doing. Uh, the, I, I would say the key foundation of any day, again, is interaction with a client. So in our world, we interact with clients and then the interaction culminates in a meeting. During the meeting, you're going through a review of the portfolio and you're in the review of the portfolio talking about how the program is performing in line with expectations. Some clients will meet on a monthly basis. Some will meet quarterly. And I look at my days this way. Um, it's either in preparation for a meeting that's taking place that week. It's either debriefing on a meeting that has taken place that week, or it's um, you know in between uh, you know brainstorming on some takeaways from that meeting. So our lives really center around meeting with the client. And again, those meetings are where you do the deep dive, the x-ray of the portfolio. You're really examining how managers are doing and so on. 
So a typical day does involve uh, interaction with a client. And again, it's either debriefing on the portfolio, um, it's getting ready for the meeting, or it's brainstorming on things that could come up during the meeting. Uh, with respect to the markets and what the markets hold for a portfolio, while we are long-term, uh, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, we, we put this portfolio together, we're not gonna worry about it for 10 years. So you still need to get a clear understanding of what is going on today and how that could imp impact the portfolio, how it's structured and so on. As an example, we think about fixed income. We go back to our time machine, we go back to March of last year where the market pulled back and then subsequently we saw significant record lows in interest rates. Uh, across the globe, not just in the US, we saw central banks accommodate uh, their monetary policy, bringing interest rates down. That leads to a discussion with the client around their fixed income allocation. What can we expect their fixed income allocation to do over the long term now with where rates are? Are there ways to further diversify that fixed income exposure, but still have a conservative portion or anchor of the portfolio? So, uh, you know, I'm going down this rabbit hole, like you just caught me, like um, every single day is a pretty thoughtful discussion around the markets and how the markets relate specifically to a client portfolio. Kwaku, by managing your client's expectations, to your analogy, we, we prepare, we talk about what happens in the market. Um, as you were saying that, I was thinking, boy, I'll bet that reduces emotions like fear or uncertainty because Kwaku has already prepared me for what might happen. We had a conversation, so I understood the arena within which I was operating. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it, it's fair. I would say that as best as we can, we try and take, um, you can't take emotion out of investing, right? Because emotions are a good thing, but letting emotions control every single decision, that's a bad thing. So. Our job is to set expectations, as you uh, correctly said, and our job is to make sure that if there is a, an emotion of disappointment, again, we're all humans, we're feeling creatures, right? So if there's a disappointment about returns, it's okay to have that disappointment. The goal is to make sure that we don't have a knee-jerk reaction where suddenly you've chased, fixed income did really well last year, right? Seven and a half percent. So an emotional reaction to that might be, let me sell out of something that didn't do as well and go into fixed income. Our job is to sit down and say, well, the reason why fixed income did really well is because rates went down to record lows. Rates can only really go up from where they are today. That's why selling and going into fixed income perhaps is not the appropriate course of action. So our job is to let folks understand that yes, emotions are natural, but then kind of block against I think the natural instinct of trying to do something different and trying to second guess uh, where they already are. Well, and there is a great deal of research in the field of behavioral finance that as individuals, we tend to do the opposite of what you just said. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, this, is, this is a tangent, it's not a plug, but this is just a tangent. Um, my first book was actually a primer for trustees and it was focused on behavioral finance. And the goal of that book was to give a trustee, whether they're new or old on a board, uh, something that they could read over a weekend. And it would remind them of some of the things that we're programmed to do as human beings. Some of these things, again, that they're helpful, particularly, you know, you go back to um, 
um, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, I'm sure it was helpful, right? To, to, to panic and freak out and trust your instincts. Uh, cause it was literally life and death situations. <laughs> Kept you alive. Uh, <laughs> yes. Whereas today that's not necessary, right? So we're programmed to think and react in certain ways, but in today's world, that's not helpful, particularly as we think about the world of investing. So the goal of that book was to show that, look, there's, um, all these biases. I, I won't go through them. There's all these biases that we're programmed to have. And ultimately, as a trustee, the more you're aware of these biases, the more powerful you become when you're making decisions and the more you can kind of gut check or reference check where those emotions are coming from. And again, sometimes, you know, the, the feeling of panic can be helpful. But another example would be, um, I remember the, the financial crisis of 08 in 09, really just talking to clients and saying, look, we don't want to sell out of equities. We don't want to go into fixed income because that will mean that we've locked in our losses and we're in an even worse place. So let's go back. Let's look at the research. Let's look at what should happen with the stock market if it is going to behave how it typically behaves. And again, it's just programming uh, trustees. Programming is not the right word, but it's it's leading trustees to uh, the water in terms of, okay, you, you viewed the world one way which is correct it's not wrong to say that you should panic seeing something down but you want to show them that it's not the end of the world again the time horizon is long the time horizon allows us to take these losses uh the stress testing of the portfolio the asset allocation scenarios did call for something like this potentially happening around the distribution of returns so it's really just reminding them of the discussions that we've had at any given point and, and when you're mentioning the word trustees, trustees come from all different backgrounds, some from yes. the industry, others not from the industry. And that's why that conversation or that book is necessary. Yes. And and that's exactly it. The, our, so our industry, it, it is a very interesting one, right? For, for lack of a better term, interesting. And you do have uh, very smart individuals that work in our industry, but some of the time I think there's a, maybe it's changed now, but there, there was always a belief, right? You came in as the consultant or the investment professional or the asset manager, and there's this air of, well, I'm the expert, I know what's going on. And I have found that with my clients, uh, the trustees, for example, uh, you have people that are tradespeople, right? I, I wish I had the skill set to, uh, you know, to do what they do, right? It would it would make my house look a lot nicer than it is right now. Um, you know, you think about uh, the 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 uh, the first responders, uh, what they have to do. There's there's no way I could go through what they go through and see on a daily basis. So there's this mutual respect that I I have for my clients and they have for me. And the goal of the book was to say that look, you guys share with me some of your stories about what you do and how you uh, put food on the table. Let this book just show you what we do and do it in plain English. So that way I'm not coming in and speaking um, you, know, you know, in words of alchemy uh, to you. It's plain English. It's just a skill set that I happen to have. And I'm just going to give you some information around the skill set, particularly around behavioral finance, which I think should help as we're talking through uh, manager performance. So as an example in the book, there's one example that shows inflows and outflows of mutual funds. And there's a specific example 
where we take emerging markets and you take emerging markets on any given year where emerging markets do poorly, that's where you have record outflows, right? From uh, the mutual funds, the retail money. And then on any given year when uh, emerging markets do well, that's where you have record inflows into, um, into the emerging markets, which is truly the worst point, right? So having that exhibit just to say that, look, our job is to not do this. And our job is to make sure that we don't have ourselves do this. Uh, it just allows the trustees to feel more comfortable when they're making decisions that seem counterintuitive to them, but truly are the right decisions. So when the market's down, don't sell out of everything. Please don't sell out of everything. That's what intuition tells you to do. But I'm here to reinforce the fact that you need to go against your intuition and you need to stay the course. These are, I always joke, fireworks right now. Fireworks that come off the screen. Individuals listening. Don't waste <laughs> performance don't chase returns yes absolutely it, quick we need to clarify too you and i aren't talking when you when you mention that you're not saying that in the context of buying a speculative individual stock you are saying that within the context of a thought out long-term portfolio yes right. yes and thank thank you for expanding on that so when i talk about our investments for clients these are institutional portfolios and if we think about an institutional portfolio, they're comprised of underlying money managers or underlying asset managers. Those underlying managers are responsible for managing those monies in the portfolio. So they are responsible, responsible for buying and selling those stocks, but we're not making uh, single stock decisions for clients. So uh, the term I've used a lot, but perhaps not expanded on, which I can now is asset allocation. We think about asset allocation for a client portfolio. So let's say, for example, the client has 30% uh, in fixed income, 70% in equities, and then within the equities, there's a 50-50 split between US and non-US. Within that allocation, we're hiring managers to make those investment decisions. So we're not controlling things at the stock level. And when we talk about clients uh, taking a step back and perhaps um, looking at why it's important to stay the course as opposed to buy or sell that's on an asset class level it's not on an individual stock level it's at the asset class level and you'll find um with asset classes there's this really nice periodic table that we have in our industry on any given year one asset class that's doing really well will probably not do so well the following year so that goes into the benefits of diversification goes into concepts of correlation goes into concepts of building a portfolio where one part of the portfolio can zig while another portfolio part of the portfolio zags uh, so yes we we are really consulting at the asset class level and the stock decision levels uh, are really left to the underlying managers that we select and for, for anyone who might be listening right now and thinking, but boy, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to be a trustee of a pension fund or uh, not going to have a, a big foundation. Well, if you're going to be administering a four, your own 401k, your own individual Roth IRA, you need to think the same way as you're describing, Kwaku. Yes. And you raised a really excellent point here. So I've mentioned endowments, foundations, pension plans. 401ks are also part of our client base. So the lineup in a 401k plan is something that we consult to and we help clients design. And then how a 401k is managed, uh, to your point by the individual, uh, 
can follow a similar model. It can be very institutional in nature. And for those uh, listening in high school uh, that either have access to a 401k or if you don't have access to a 401k, perhaps just, you know, Google is this amazing thing, right? Where you can access anything. Uh, just Google 401k lineup and you'll see a target date fund as a option in a 401k plan. A target date fund is truly, I think, the 401k industry's response to what we just discussed, right? A one size fits mm -hmm. all asset allocation model, very long-term approach. You're not looking to time the market. It's a very disciplined, uh, you know, multi-market cycle approach to investing. So yeah, for, for anyone interested, uh, Google target date fund. And I think that will bring home something that you uh, could be accessing, uh, you know, relatively quickly in your lives. And it will just give you a sense again of asset allocation, diversification, and long-term investing. And for many of the, the, when you Google that target date fund, I speculate big companies will come up, Vanguard's, Fidelity's, Charles Schwab type companies where these same individuals, high school students, call the hotline. Say I'm an 18 year old high school senior. I heard this great guy, Kwaku, tell me to Google 401k. I did, and I've got a couple questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Kwaku, what are, like when, you, when you're in these client meetings and the authenticity in your voice gives away your passion for this occupation, is there a most popular question that a client asks you or a, 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 within a realm of popular questions? Yes, uh, ab absolutely. So we always get the question of, are we gonna make our return target? And is our return target realistic? With respect to a return target, let me just describe that very quickly. So any investment program will have a target rate of return. And that target rate of return is really set by, uh, you know, an actuary or another professional uh, for a set reason, right? It, it could be around a contribution policy. It could be around, uh, you know, statutory requirements. There are a number of reasons why a set target rate of return needs to get hit. But the the key... Uh, for any asset allocation is to put that portfolio in the best position to hit that target rate of return. Therefore, trustees will always focus on that and always focus on, hey, is it realistic that we can hit it this year? Can we hit this rate of return this year? So the, those are the, hands down the most common questions we get. Uh, I have two follow-on questions to that. Uh, and I, I, the first one I want the, our audience to hear the answer to, do your clients hit their return expectation every year? Unfortunately not. Uh, we've had a couple of good years in a row though, but unfortunately not. So uh, the return- well, I mean, What do you advise in that situation, right? Because history shows we can't get it every year. Yes. So it's really a reminder. And if, if we're doing our jobs well as the consultant, when we set an asset allocation and we've gone through an asset allocation study, that study should really just walk through uh, you know, the distribution of returns, right? There's the bell curve and then you have tails and then ultimately the target rate of return that it's expected to get hit over that full market cycle over that 10 year period, that's within the mean or the median, uh, depending on what the analysis, what we're focusing on in the analysis. So you don't hit that number successively every single year. It means that, look, if you have a 7% target rate of return, in some years, like last year, where the market was up 18%, fixed income was up 7.5%, you 
you're going to hit that. But then other years, like uh, 2018, right? Seems like a long way away, but 2018, the Fed flirted with raising interest rates. The market freaked out during the fourth quarter. There was a sell-off. Everything went down. In, in those years, you can't avoid being down if everything's literally down. 2008, if everything is down, you, you can't avoid being down. It's not realistic to expect to be positive when literally everything you're invested in is down. So it goes back to if we're doing our work as the consultant and we really are being uh, that extension of staff or that trusted advisor, it's clearly laying out within the realm of possibilities these tail events that can happen. Now, the tail events can be both positive and negative, and it goes back again to human nature. Human nature, we always want to focus on the right tail. What can go well? Uh, we've had a bull market. That bull market's been 10 years. Uh, let's have another bull market, right? What can go right? What can go right? And during those discussions, you have to be the Debbie Downer in the room to say that, look, we've had a 10-year bull market. That's great. But the probability of that happening another year, and I always caveat it by saying, I hope I'm wrong, right? I'm not wishing for a market correction, but in the realm of po possibilities, if a market's up on any given year, it does increase the chance of mean reversion. So again, that target rate of return, uh, we don't expect to hit it every year. I would love it. I would love it. Between now and when I retire, if every single year <laughs> I hit that target rate of return, but it's, it's, it's not going to happen. So that goes back to uh, the question you asked earlier, what do I do day to day when I'm speaking with clients? It's making sure that we're always on that same page with respect to how the portfolio is performing, how the managers are performing, performing. So if we don't hit that target rate of return, that there isn't that mass panic. There isn't that freak out. There is disappointment, which is natural. Uh, but we understand, we'll understand the reasons for that underperformance and we'll just make sure that there's still comfort with the direction, uh, we're taking uh, with, with the portfolio and how the portfolio is um, allocated. But knowing that by telling your clients in advance, preparing them in advance, knowing that a 2008 or 2018, while we don't know when they will occur, knowing they will occur is an important tool in the, the investing toolbox. Correct. Absolutely. So now I'm going to feed in. So I had asked that, that last question within the context of calendar years, as you had framed it. Let me ask you a follow-on to that. When you look out long-term, if we take mm -hmm. the context of investing as a long-term relationship, how does the accuracy of your forecasts, uh, I assume it improves and not worsens? Yeah, I, I would say 10 years is kind of that sweet spot. Uh, 30 years, uh, yeah, we will have discussions around what could happen 30 years out, but that, that becomes a lot tougher, right? Uh, 10 years, I, I would say that, yes, the... You're never directly on the number. So I, I say that as an example. If, if I have an asset allocation study, it gives me 7.62. <laughs> I'm probably at 7.7, 7, 7, and change. I'm not, again, I would love it if I'm right there 10 years from the date on 7.62. But yes, you are close around that number. Uh, the longer you, um, you, you pull out the time horizon. Um, one thing I should mention around our asset allocation studies and why accuracy is also important is that we, we, we do look at our assumptions on a pretty frequent basis. So, you know, with a client, perhaps every, you know, three years, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that the underpinnings of the asset allocation still hold true. Uh, 
and they take into account where we are from an interest rate standpoint, where equity valuations are and so on. So that helps with the uh, enhancing of the accuracy over the long term. Uh, Very powerful. So while we'll never be second decimal point accurate, and while your forecasts don't know when they'll occur, they include both above and below Yes, 2008, but that was followed by 2009. Yes. Um, and an individual listening right now, we just equip with another powerful tool. Okay, it works if I stick with it. Correct. Quaker, do you have a favorite, and if you don't, just say I don't, but do you have a favorite client or colleague story that maybe has like an actual step? Let's say let's say we grab that 18-year-old right now and they're saying, I'm going to be an investment consultant. I'm in. Um, What's a story you might be able to share to build on that inspiration? So this goes back to our industry and it's, um, you know, we're dealing with other people's money. So I would say that there aren't any like hilarious stories, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, and so-and-so walked in the butt. So there's, there's none of that, but I would, I would say that, look, the, I think the, the, the nice story is, and this is really a common theme. So it's not just one client. It is the ability to strike up that trust. And if something isn't in a portfolio today, but you think it might be helpful for the client, it could be real estate, it could be private equity, it could be infrastructure, and it's not in the client portfolio today, but through education, through uh, case studies, through presentations, through discussions, that client eventually invest in the asset class. I think that's a great story to share. And that's something that's a common theme across clients. It means that I am doing my job or my colleagues are doing their job when they can look at a portfolio and say, look, it's in pretty good shape, but I think this is what will really, really help us. I think that common theme of being able to, again, advise on what would be the best fit uh, and having the client accept your idea. Uh, I think that is a common theme and that's a story that I think we, we, we're we all pretty proud of. Uh, and that doesn't relate to one client. I would say that relates to, you know, 99% of the clients we work with. Gaining an understanding of what they are doing. It's a very powerful statement. Correct. Correct. It's, it's like, um, like any relationship, right? I, our job is to have a good relationship with the client. And that good relationship means you have a clear sight into what the objective is for the pool of money. So you get a sense of uh, the the di- distribution of retirees, right? Uh, over the next 15 years, what does the retirement profile look like? Getting an understanding of that means that you can build a portfolio that's a lot more sensitive or a lot more aggressive to certain market movements based off that. So again, it's really just making sure that no question is not asked. And then um, just having that really nice relationship with trustees, with staff, allows you to just deal with it a lot more naturally. I think the worst thing, um, you know, advising anyone that's a student uh, that's thinking about investment consulting. I think the worst thing an investment consultant can do is is not be passionate about the clients they work with. The worst thing they can do is not feel that they are part of the client's family or the client is part of their family. You have to feel emotionally invested 
Um, it will give you great hairs, but it really, really just gives you that sense of satisfaction and that clear understanding of what it is you do. Like when you wake up every morning, there is no question to me of, okay, what am I doing today? I, I know what I'm doing. Like I've got it laid out. Uh, the phone calls are already teed up. The calendar's already got, um, uh, you know, appointments set in it. And again, uh, emotionally invest yourself with your clients and you'll find that it's the most rewarding for me is the most rewarding career. I, I feel very blessed and grateful I can do this. Uh, your passion as you're talking, uh, there, the AB, your book, the ABCs of Financial Literacy, there had to be some emotion from this, this passion and this career. It was all your kids, it was all the at home, there was no little bit of drawing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, so I'm, part of it is always, um, I just enjoy it. So, and we kind of, we, we, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because uh, you, you asked earlier, what are your hobbies? And uh, another hobby is trying to do more in the way of fiction reading because um, I, re I, I should say, I used to read a lot of finance books like in my spare time. And again, I talk with my wife and she's like, yeah, it's kind of like working out. That's not a hobby. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's, you need to find something that's different. So yeah, it's a way to do something different, something that's creative. Uh, so I guess it was, you know, uh, it got my creative juices going, but it was still not straying so far from, from what I do. Uh, and the nice thing about the book is it, it was done in a way where it's written for, I think, all ages. You can be young, you can be old. Um, there's something there for everyone, which was, was kind of fun. Whether you've been in the industry 20 years, 30 years, you're just starting out, whether you're six years old, 20 years old, there's something there for everyone. So yeah, a passion for the industry. Um, yeah, that was a key driver. That was a key driver. Hearing you say that, my my parent hat kicks on. I have four children, and it sounds like this is a book that I could have a conversation around the dinner table about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And firstly, God bless you and your better half for <laughs> four kids. I have three, so I don't know how you do it with four. Um, God bless my other half. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wow. Um, Quaker, you said something also that I want to throw to our educators and our parents listening. Um, you, you were, when we asked about the favorite client story, you had said the statement, it's important that you have a clear objective for the pool of money. What a great take home assignment for a personal finance educator to an 18 year old or a 22 year old. What is the objective? Write it down. And that will help you frame next steps as opposed to just the bad analogy, putting your head in the sand and hoping it works out. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. I have two kind of more, more personal questions to, to wrap up on. Um, okay. It's been just fantastic. Um, I'm writing down, we, we could go for hours, Kwaku. Um, but let's bring it back to personal. Who were some of the mentors in your life? Who who were people that helped shape this authenticity and this passion that just exudes from you? So with mentors, I... My original mentors are my mom and my dad. I, I have to, I have to go to my parents. Uh, for, for me, it was uh, you know both of them uh, were all about just working hard. All of them, both of them, I should say, uh, like we loved reading. They would share books with me. We would talk about books. 
doing things with passion. <laughs> I'm laughing now because, you know, as a kid, you're like, what, why, why are mom and dad saying this? But uh, doing things with passion, finding something that um, is enjoyable, that gives you joy, but you can also spread that joy to other people. These are all things they told me as a kid, which I didn't get as a kid, but now I'm grateful for as an adult. So I, I definitely, um, you know, give my parents that, that credit for, again, just really setting that example for me. Um, we spoke about uh, the 400 meters and rugby and things like that at the beginning of the call. Again, it's not, this isn't mentoring, but I would say playing rugby uh, for a number of years was also really helpful for me in terms of looking at things from a, the, the team analogy is overplayed, but it's, it's not at the same time, right? Sometimes cliches exist for a reason. So playing mm -hmm. rugby, playing on a team also allowed me to really think about my strengths and then other folks that would either complement uh, those strengths or they would make up for my weaknesses. And that's been an approach I've had uh, to you know how, how I work, uh, the teams I put together to service clients, just really making sure that you know when we put our foot forward, it truly is our best foot forward. Uh, college, I had a professor. So this this is actually pretty neat. So the the um, uh, there's a thing called the Bernard Corey Prize in Economics. I ended up getting that in my undergrad for a thesis um, that I put together. And it was on structural adjustment policy, something that the World Bank had put in place in the 1980s through to the 90s in emerging parts of the world. Long story short, the professor that encouraged me to do the thesis was a key reason behind me going to grad school. When I went to grad school, it opened up my eyes into looking at economics, not just from a lens of, okay, you're just running numbers and you're just doing calculations and you're looking at charts, these are decisions that impact people, right? And I think economics can be a very abstract concept if you want it to be abstract, but it can also be very real life in the sense of, okay, how does this policy impact millions upon millions of people if it's enacted? And I think working with that professor and having them challenge me to looking at things a little differently also, I think, opened my eyes into looking at, okay, financial decisions even if you're the smartest person on the planet, if you can't think through what the implications may be to the thousands or the tens or the one or two individuals of this policy, well, something's missing, right? So there needs to be a human element into your analysis and what you do. Uh, so I, I, like you, I, I could talk for hours, but I think uh, I'll stop there and uh, say that, you know, those, those are the key mentors, uh, folks that have inspired um, during my career and my life. But th there's many more. And if, if anyone <laughs> has been a mentor and they're listening to this, please don't be offended. It's just a, it's a time issue. I could talk for hours about all the people that have helped. So with uh, the first, your parents, such a powerful mentor, do you continue the tradition you started with them and share books with your own children? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So yes, um, and it is—it's a really proud moment uh, where all of my kids have—they—they uh, they have my books. Uh, my youngest seven-year-old uh, during a Zoom class, she didn't understand it, but she just went through a couple of pages with the Zoom class, which was really cute. Uh, my middle schooler, 
um, it was just nice. Like he had such a nice smile on his face when I gave him a signed copy of his own book. I'm his dad, but these are things that are pretty huge. And then the teenager, uh, I mean, she's a teenager, so not much impresses her these days, but, um, she, she did pass along a copy of a book to one of her friends. So, uh, again, I think, um, grounding the kids to let them know that they can, you know, be whatever they want to in life, but there's just core principles, right? There's the be yourself, uh, be a decent human being. Um, look, look at where you can make a difference. It's not about what you make, how much you make. Uh, I think in life, happiness, uh, there's no price for that. So be happy, be productive, and just be a good person. And um, I, that, that's what we're instilling in them. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, that that's gonna that leads really well into our kind of final question. If you were talking to your younger self, you know, Quaku sitting in that high school or that college classroom, what advice would you give yourself with what you know now? Um, put everything you own in in GameStop, I guess, like a couple of weeks ago. No, but no jokes aside. Um, to my younger self. Um, no, I mean, it, this is the thing. The, these questions would, would point to a degree of um, disappointment with something and whatever challenges life has given me or whatever obstacles are there, they've led me to where I am today. So to my younger mm -hmm. self, it's the same advice. Just uh, find something you're passionate about. Find something that um, you can be strong at. And if you've not found it at 18, it's okay. Just keep on, keep on looking, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, I think we're sometimes wired for this immediate satisfaction and, uh, it doesn't work out that way. I mean, my younger self, maybe I, yes, I would have told myself like, it's going to take a bit longer. Like at the age of 20, you're not, <laughs> not going to be exactly where you want to be in life. And that's fine. Um, investment consulting, I didn't know about it. And again, for me, it was uh, through finding myself, understanding what I wanted to do in my career a lot more, and um, exploring the realms of opportunities that led to becoming an investment consultant. So yeah, to my younger self, continue to uh, be hungry. Don't ever lose the passion. Don't ever lose the thirst for knowledge. Uh, disappointments will happen, but learn from them. Um, you know, Let them make you stronger. And you kind of know in your gut if you're on a positive journey, right? If you're maximizing yourself and what you can do, uh, continue to do that. Mm -hmm. Quaker, there's a lot of wisdom in your words. Uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, on behalf of everyone at Troutwood, I want to say thank you. This was, this was fun. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. I, this has been great. This has been fun, uh, especially for a Monday morning. <laughs> uh, this is something very, very different. So I appreciate your guys' time. Thank you a lot. This has been really fun. And I, I hope for the listeners, this is uh, something helpful. And hopefully uh, down the line, we can have a conveyor belt of investment consultants that can point to this being a pivotal point in their lives. I love it. Let's make that happen. Listeners, to everyone tuning into this episode of the Troutwood Speaker Series, thank you. See you next time. All right. Thank you so much.